Well, it is indeed a uh, pleasure to be here and to uh, share with you God's Word. The one that gets the most benefit, of course, is the preacher. We get to meditate on the Word and, and pray, Lord, do a deep work in me. So let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you, oh our God, that you've given us your Word, that we might understand what is true, that we might live in the reality of the living God. Please, uh, Open our hearts, help me to speak as one speaking the very words of God and please uh, do, do a deep work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a big universe, don't we? That's what I realised when I was a little tacker. And uh, we deal with some big questions. My one back then was, uh, what am I here for? Well, God's given us some psalms to match, and you've been looking at some of those. Um, big picture psalm, Psalm 1, you will uh, remember, is about how to flourish in, in this world. I'm just going to use something to block my notes there. That's better. How to flourish in this world, and in God's world. And, and the method God gives us is his word. We learn to get our brains and our hearts in tune with the way God is. That's why he's given us his word. And blessed is the man who does, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. It's a good word to have memorised in your heart. So we have God's word in here and in here so we can learn to think the way God wants us to think. Second psalm that you've just done is um, Psalm 2. Another big question, uh, big big picture psalm and it's the, it answers the question, who's what's happening in this world? And uh, as you will have heard from Steve, it's a world that is picking a fight in Steve's words that it can't hope to win. Picking a fight with God. And uh, so what does God do? Well, he puts a puts his one and only son on the throne and that king on the throne warns uh, everybody to find refuge in him. It also ends with blessing. Each of those, the first three psalms end with blessing. Well, the first one starts with blessing. Blessed is the man. The next two uh, Psalm 2 ends with blessing because it says blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 3, which he did last week, is uh, a little shows us a bit of what it's like to be in a world that opposes God. That we are actually involved in the fight. And that we can cry out to the one who 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 can help us and say, Lord help us. We've got opposition. Um, you know the opposition. Um, please help us. And it concludes with salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So God wants to bless us, doesn't he? he? Wants us to live in his blessing. Today we're looking at another big picture psalm, Psalm 8. So if you've got your Bibles open to Psalm 8, we're going to go through it. It's a big picture psalm. And it answers the question, what kind of God do we have? Now his proper name, his name is Yahweh. We tend not to use that a lot, but that's what in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, stands for. 
Yahweh, the Lord. What kind of God is the Lord? Well, first of all, he's approachable. Look at the first four words. O Lord, our Lord. He can approach his God, can't he? Confidently. He's obviously bent, bowed the knee, as in Psalm 2, and because uh, that's what the second O Lord, the Lord means. He's the governor, the ruler. He's the one to whom David has bowed the knee, because this is the Psalm of David. David knows he can confidently speak to and approach his God. And then uh, he prays. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Majestic. Not a word that we use very often, is it? You kind of, if you think back in the last week, how many times you used the word majestic? It's sort of not common in our, in our lingo. But we, we do understand what majestic means. Uh, various, there's one a verse that comes to my mind is, Glorious art thou, O Lord, more majestic than the everlasting mountains. There's something about stately, majestic mountains that does something to us, isn't there? We respond to it. What else helps us to see majesty? Well, what about the, the intricacy of a flower? We see God's majesty in that. Or the glory of a sunrise or a sunset. It helps us to get a, the sense of awe, of, of majesty. One of the uh, things about majesty is there is a... Uh, if you see something that's majestic, like it might be a, a horse running in, in, a, in a stately sort of way, there's a kind of controlled power. Or if you look at a lion, it's, there's authority there. They're all aspects of majesty. Controlled power and authority. The other thing about it is it's not corrupt. Majesty doesn't, uh, it's clean, it has, has integrity to it. Now, isn't it interesting that we're designed to respond to uh, when we see something that's majestic, just in the same way as we respond to a little cute child, a little baby toddler or whatever? Do we respond to, that, to, to, to a child like that? Well, I do. I, I, I have a baby watch with my wife. You know, we sit down and I say, we've got a floor show, Lynn, and uh, we're having a cup of coffee and there's a little toddler or a baby on her knee next door. And so we, we, we enjoy the floor show. They're so cute, aren't they? And we're designed to respond to cuteness. God's made us that way. And in the same way, we're designed to respond to something that is majestic, which is our God. He is majestic. But there's something rather surprising about the majesty of God that this psalm brings out and also brings out in Hebrews 2. Now, the next thing about after majesty, it's, it's how majestic is your name in all the earth. What does that mean? Well, a name is your revealed character and reputation. God actually developed, established a name for himself in the way he brought the people out of Egypt to show that he was the infinite God who could do anything, rescue a very weak people who did nothing to help get out of Egypt 
God made a name for himself. He brought them through the, the Red Sea, drowned all the Egyptians. He made a name for himself, a reputation. And in that, that was a, a powerful uh, way to, to do it. But that's part of the reason why he actually did it that way. To make a name. So his majesty is displayed in his name. And then where does David see it? He sees it in all the earth. As I was driving here, you see some of God's majesty along the way. The morning sun just glinting off the edge of the white bark of, of the uh, stately gum tree. We see it in his creation. But it's also not just the locate, the, um, uh, the creation that speaks of it. When he's saying you, how, um, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it's also how widespread is God's name, the glory and majesty of God's name. It's worldwide. Now, God, in his mercy then, moving on from to verse 1b, uh, you'll see he, he takes two steps in, in verses 1 and 2 in, in the way he operates in his majesty. By the way, he, you know he's going to end the psalm with this statement of God's majesty. So what comes between the, the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm, the meat in the sandwich, if you will, is going to help us understand majesty, the majesty of God, more than what we had when we first started. You got that? That's what, that's the focus of David's talk here. David's, um, meditation. So what's the first step that God takes? Well, he says, he is going, he's going to set, you have set your glory above the heavens. Now in this sentence, David describes this first step by the majestic God. To set his glory above the heavens. It speaks of the magnitude of his glory. But while David sees this um, God's majesty displayed on earth, the glory of God goes far beyond that. It's set way above the heavens. So it's big. But there's another aspect to it here. As I understand it, in some sense, the Lord actually hides some of his glory out of our sight. It's set above the heavens. David can't see it up there. God in his kindness doesn't hit us with all of his glory. We wouldn't cope. It'd be like getting too close to the sun, wouldn't it? His glory would just wipe us out. Too overpowering. So the Lord in his majesty note, his majestic as he restrains this full display of his glory, he set it out of our sight above the heavens. Now that helps us to see that he is a little bit more of what God is like. He's not only immensely glorious, he's also kind towards his creation. All right, verse 2. David reveals the second step, and this is a very important step I want you to grasp. The second step the Lord has taken in his majesty that reveals his majesty. Verse 2. Now I've got the ESV here, there's various renditions of it, but it's um, this is uh, the one I have. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established or set 
or uh, ordained. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Step two, God's taken. First one was to set his glory above the heavens. The second one is this step of establishing strength somehow. Now, he does it for a purpose. What's the purpose? The foes. His enemies. So God's going to take a particular method of dealing with his enemies. What means is he going to use to beat or conquer his enemies? Out of the mouths of what is the most humble and helpless. The weakest thing that comes from the most humble source. Yahweh, our Lord, is establishing a pattern here. In his majesty, he uses weakness to defeat the strength of his foes. Jesus used this, uh, the Greek translation of this in Matthew 21 uh, when he was uh, confronted by the, his, uh, his uh, opposition to his foes because he just cleared out the temple. They didn't like that too well. Uh, all the, the trades, uh, tradesmen that were helping uh, probably feed the, uh, getting the kickback for all the uh, scribes and Pharisees. You know, he came into their temple and cleaned it out. And then uh, he was doing miracles, healing people after, immediately after that. And the young kids were going around saying, Hosanna to the son of David in that situation. And how did they think the, uh, the foes responded? They said, hey, Lord, or Jesus, what, what, can't you shut these guys up? Listen to what they're saying. And Jesus quoted Psalm 8. Verse 2. And he shut them up out of the mouths of babes and infants. And there's probably a, a word like we have words that have two meanings. The word can have, mean praise and it can also mean strength. So the Greek one goes with, with the praise. Either way, Jesus used it to quieten the foes. So that's the literally uh, an example of it, how Jesus used it. But, but God in his majesty chooses to use weakness, the, the small, the humble, in so many ways. Now I'm sure you, you can think of lots of them. Let's uh, think of, I'll give you an example, Goliath, strong or, strong or weak? Goliath strong. Did God use strength to beat Goliath? Nope, he used weakness. Uh, what about Abraham, strong or weak? Weak, and yet he conquered uh, five nations. Um, God just used him. Um, that was when they were, uh, when he rescued Lot. What about uh, God's chosen people in Egypt? Were they strong or weak? Weak, weak as water, dishwater. And God used, in the, that case, his strength to deal with them. What about King Hezekiah? And the invading Assyrians. All, this, all uh, Hezekiah could do was um, go to the temple with, with Isaiah and pray. And what happened to the Assyrians? 185,000 
overnight, dead. So God uses the weak, but he does it to silence the, the, uh, his strong foes. So that's a, a principle that the, the Lord has established in this verse. And he does it because that's the way he is. He is majestic. He doesn't use power to defeat power. He uses humility. It's the way he's done it, and we're going to see, and the way he will always do it. So having revealed these two aspects of God's majesty and these two steps that he's taken, David now turns his gaze to the heavens. Now, um, so let's read verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. You have an advantage in living in Mafra, don't you? Yes, you do. A bit more when you get not so good close to the city. You get to see it in all its glory, its majesty. It just, uh, it's immense. And that's what David sees. He sees it's immense. He says, when I look at the heavens, I see it's immense. But what else does he see? He actually sees something more than that. The work of your fingers. Just little fingers. In other words, God, you're much bigger than that universe. If you're that big, you're that big, how come you actually have any interest in human beings? That's what he's going to get to. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 40 to the exiles are going to go into uh, off to Babylon they need to get a good picture of who God is and so uh, they're not going to have the temple anymore one of the things it says in Isaiah 40 he talks about God measures off this, the heavens with a span you and I are dealing with a big God he's huge, immense it's hard to get our heads around isn't it but that's what you and I who you and I are dealing with. Someone who is immense. But, how does David respond to this observation of relative size? He's amazed at Yahweh's condescension. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you think about him, that he's, that you dwell on him, and the son of man that you care for him? Does the Lord's immensity limit his condescension. When he's that big, how low can he stoop? It obviously doesn't limit his condescension because David says, he, you are mindful, you care. Now you probably know the verse 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares, your anxieties on him, for he cares for you it's a great promise isn't it why does he give us that verse because he knows we're weak and and so we don't need to worry about being weak that's the beauty I come up here and think Lord I'm weak good yep that's I know and we need to understand that God doesn't mind it being that way that we are weak is helpful 
It's when we think we're strong that we're going to be in trouble. So uh, that's why we can get the anxieties, which help then help us to see we're weak, and then we cry out to God for his help because he cares. In his immense, although he's huge, immense beyond our comprehension, he condescends to care for us. So it's a special characteristic of this king's majesty is his inclination to stoop low. You normally wouldn't have thought majesty and humility going together, would you? But in one sense you do know that. Because when Queen Elizabeth, you know, she goes down and visits the crowds, doesn't she? What does she do? Goes along and talks to individuals. Now if she's thought, I'm, I'm above this. Now I'll just drive by and do my, my wave. Sort of aloof. What would that do to Her Majesty? It would diminish it. See, the, the beauty of majesty is there's condescension in it. And the condescension of an infinite God is so much more majestic. Now there's a couple of examples in Isaiah. Isaiah pressed this home. Uh, in two of my favourite verses in Isaiah 57.15 he says for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite isn't that amazing God's showing the, 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 the two the contrast, he was way up there, but he loves getting close and personal to the humble and contrite. And he says the same thing to end Isaiah in 66, 2, 1 and 2. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So we want to grasp strongly that God's amazing majesty in condescending toward us. David, but there's more. David goes on in verse 5. You have set him, you, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. The message here in the context of this psalm is the Lord's extraordinary generosity. You know, the world wants to put people down, doesn't it? So we're nothings. God says that's not the way it is. We're crowned with glory and honour. Well, it mightn't be immediately apparent in this fallen world that we're crowned with glory and honour. That's in fact what we are in Christ and we know that Jesus will share his glory with us on his return isn't that condescending he's going to share his glory with us the gracious condescension of our God which are all parts of his majesty alright verse 6 to 8 David marvels at, the, at Yahweh's majesty in the position that he has given us in his creation he's our ruler our Lord, he has made us, he shared that honour with us, that we also 
have the honour of ruling. It's obviously a reference back to Genesis chapter 2. Now while our, our current role is anything but glorious, we're not doing a very good job of it, we will one day share that rule with our heavenly king. Once again, it's amazing condescension. And now in verse 9, we reach again this heartfelt wonder of the majesty of the name. Though I hope we've got a slightly better understanding of majesty as a result of uh, what he's revealed in the psalm. But as uh, you know from our second reading, there's going to be a little bit more to this talk because um, the majesty of God is also revealed in Hebrews 2. So if you flick across to Hebrews 2, and we're just going to finish with it. The situation of the book of Hebrews is an interesting one. It was written because the Hebrews were tempted to walk away from God and uh, the big question that they had was, well, Jesus, how, if he was God, how could he stoop that low? How can one... We thought he was going to come on this white night and conquer all. Wasn't he going to be the great ruling Messiah? What's this bit about being humbled and death on a cross and not just an ordinary death but a cursed death the Jews didn't get it they needed to understand how much God condescends and in this passage that we'll go through very quickly he raises five reasons why Jesus takes this humbling but majestic these steps he does it because he's going to use weakness and humility to silence his enemies just like Psalm 8-2 so looking at verse let's just go through them uh, reason number one but we see from verse nine but we see him who from who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, the first reason, and you know this one instinctively, the first reason is that the path to glory always travels through suffering. Always. Imagine a, a winning marathon runner coming into their stadium, he's the head of the pack, and there's, there's 100,000 in the stadium and they all roar as he comes in and he's, he's running and, they, uh, and he breasts the tape. The crowd knows he wasn't dropped off by a limo from his hotel just outside the door, don't they? Isn't that right? And if they knew that that was the case, how would they feel? Oh, that terrible... They know he's suffered in training and he's gone through the pain of this race and he's won. See, there's no honour without suffering. We're made like that. We'll come back to a little bit more. So that's number one. Because of the suffering of his death, the death he took, 
He is now crowned with glory and honour. Cause effect. The second is that Jesus' humiliation displays God's grace. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Part of God's majesty is his grace. And so he's actually revealing what God's like. Without Jesus' death on the cross, we would never know how wonderful God is. We wouldn't know. The beauty of the cross is that it helps us to see what an amazing God we have. It shows us how gracious he is. Thirdly, verse 10. And there's interesting words here. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Reason number three, it was fitting. Completely in accord with God's character and with the way you and I see things. The path to glory for Jesus was going to be through suffering. A bit of a repetition of, verse of, of our first one a bit, but it's the fitting God says it's fitting. You don't watch a movie, a drama movie, with a hero or heroine who just does it easy the whole way through, do you? You get to the end of one of those and you say, what was that about? They have to go and be tested to the, to the limit. I noticed that in um, uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, any Lord of the Rings fans here? There's um, there's a, there's a situation where um, Bilbo's mate, uh, I forgot his name, he they're, they're climbing this mountain and Bilbo's mate is actually the, the the hero. He's rejected. He's sent home, and he's going down and he realizes he's been conned, and he turns and he climbs back up the mountain, but uh, and he he's a hero. But he had to do it tough at some stage. And in the same way, Jesus had to do it tough. And it wasn't on the cross. It was in Gethsemane. Our hero has gone through hell. So we know it's fitting. It's part of any good story. And it matches into God's majesty perfectly. Reason number four. Well, we've got to deal with the enemy sometimes. So here he does, uses weakness to defeat strength. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise humbled himself, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How did Jesus defeat Satan, the accuser? How did he silence him? How did he crush his head, as in Genesis 3? Through his own death on the cross. He used the strength of weakness and humility that we saw in Psalm 8.2. He uses weakness to still the enemy. There's one more reason, reason five. And this one is quite an amazing one of why he would condescend so far. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become 
a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those being tempted. See, the Lord Jesus in his condescension knows what it is to suffer. So you and I can confidently relate to him in our trials. He knows what what it's like. He's been through it himself. Oh, what a saviour, hey? So that we can relate to him and draw close to one who condescends so far. Oh, the majesty of his condescension. When I was a young teenager, I cried to God to help me to find him. And that if I found him, I'd live for him. I remember promising God that. I had no idea at that time how far the infinite one would go, how far he would humble himself to in fact make living for him a reality. I'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him, the majestic one, who for their sake died and was raised. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. O our loving Heavenly Father, we just praise you for your majesty. Thank you that you condescend to the very weakest and that you use weakness to defeat strength. Please help us in our weakness to hang on to you to love you, to appreciate you, to enjoy your majesty. Grow us in our appreciation of how wonderful you are. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.